And hello everyone, I'm T.D. Worthington, pastor of the Pathway Baptist Church in Goldsboro, North Carolina. And once again, I'm inviting you to stay tuned for these next 25 or 30 minutes as we study the Word of God together and enjoy some fellowship through the shed blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be talking about unseen glory, the unseen glory, or at least a part of the unseen glory that surrounds every believer in Christ Jesus. And well, we'll be talking about that just a little bit today. I hope you'll stay tuned for today's entire entire program, if you will. Just before today's message, though, I've got a musical selection coming your way. I hope you'll enjoy this. It's by a group called Poet Voices. Before you knew how to love me is the name of the song. I hope you'll enjoy it. Back in a moment with today's study from the Word of God. She served the morning coffee to her dead preacher man. Took off his hat and kissed his cheek and held his wrinkled hand. She said to him, I love you, as she looked into his eyes. And how he answered, took her Finally home with the ones that he loves most. 
Yes, he is there with the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And I'm sure that Poet Voices on today's Pathlight program, and we're so glad you tuned in today. Hope you'll stay with us for the entire study as we take a look at the Word of God together today. I've got a message entitled, The Unseen Glory. The Unseen Glory. I I want you to remember, if you will, in the Word of God, a story that we can read back in the book of uh, 2 Kings. I believe it's in chapter number 6 about Elijah. And if you remember, he's on Dothan and and he is surrounded by the enemies of the Lord. And I tell you what, it looks like there's no hope. And his servant basically conveys as much. Basically, if I could uh, just paraphrase, the servant tells the light, he says, so we're going to die. There, there's no doubt about it. We are going, we are going uh, to die. But if you remember, the prophet Elisha said, look, uh, Lord, open up his eyes. And at that moment, the servant did open his eyes, or God opened his eyes, and he saw around him an encampment of the host of heaven. And, of course, the acknowledgement, greater are those that are with us and those that are with them, as they saw the flaming swords and they saw the army of the Lord. He saw, if you will, at Dothan that day, the unseen Glory. Now, you might say, I've I've never seen anything like that. I believe it's true because it's in the Word of God, but I've never seen anything like that. Well, I'll tell you the truth, nor have I. But yet, I want to share with you today how we might can at least visualize that and get a glimpse of that the way the Lord would have us to. In Matthew chapter 18, verse number 10, the Lord Jesus says this, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. I I think the Lord is meaning here, let the beauty and radiance of every unimpressive Christian, the most unimpressive Christian you can think about, let their protective angels quickly put to silence any scorn or ridicule we might cast their way. And of course, this reverses all the human concepts of greatness. To see this, let's clarify first who these little ones of the Lord refers to here are. These little ones certainly can include children. There's no doubt about that. I believe he used a child here as an example. I think it would include the mentally infirm, but it also refers to all true believers in Jesus Christ viewed from the standpoint of their childlike trust and childlike faith. They are the heaven-born, blood-washed children of God. And we know this, I believe, because of the context here in Matthew chapter 18. 
The, sept, uh, the section here begins by the disciples asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's back in chapter 18, verse number 1. And Jesus answers and says, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children. He says, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the Lord is drawing a parallel between all true believers and little children. The text then is not just about children. Now, please don't misunderstand me. There are many verses that point to the love our Lord has for children, but more is implied here. It is about those who become like children and thus enter the kingdom of heaven. It's about all who are the true disciples of Jesus Christ. This is confirmed in Matthew chapter 8, verse number 6, when the Lord says, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me? He says it would be better that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the depths of the sea. The little ones are those who believe in Jesus. That's what he says there in verse number six. In the wider context, we see the same language with the same meaning. For example, in Matthew ten forty two, our Lord says, and whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones, he says, a cup of cold water, only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. The little ones represented here are certainly not just children. Is anyone we might give water to, any thirsty soul that we might help, and we do it as a disciple of the Lord. We do it in His name and for His glory. Likewise, in the picture of the final judgment in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. That's Matthew 25, 40. So follow the logic here. The least of these, identified here in 25, 40, are the brethren or brothers of Jesus. The brothers of Jesus are those who do the will of God, Matthew 12, 50. And those who do the will of God are those who enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 7, 21. Therefore, in Matthew 18, 10, it becomes very, very, I think, obvious to all of us when Jesus refers to these little ones, whose angels see the face of God, he's talking about his disciples, those who will enter the kingdom. Not you and I, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, you and I, not people in general, but you and I as the blood-washed believers of Christ. Whether humans in general have good or evil angels attending to them by God or the devil, I, I can't find that specifically addressed in the Bible. So that's something I don't know. I, I, I know God's angels and certainly demons can interact with the lost, but that's not exactly what we're talking about here. We're talking about more of an angelic entourage that's around a believer. Whether you have a personal guardian angel or not, I wouldn't argue the point one way or the other. But I'm saying here we all have an angelic entourage, if I might call it that, that are surrounding us. So what does Jesus mean when he says we should not despise his childlike followers? And what does it mean when he backs that up by saying their angels see the face of God? It is possible that their angels refers to a specific angel assigned to them. I mentioned that 
There's one text that some think points to that direction when the praying believers in Acts chapter 12 could not believe that Peter was knocking at the gate since he was supposed to be in prison. They said it is his angel in Acts 12, 15. That may or may not imply that all believers have angels assigned, a specific angel assigned to them. I don't know. It may only imply that they thought that God might have commissioned at that moment a special angel to use Peter's voice, Acts 12, 14, and perhaps awaken the disciples of their urgent need to pray for Peter. I'm not sure about that. It's even more difficult here in Matthew 18.10 to infer that each believer has an angel assigned to them when it says that in heaven their angels, that's plural, do always behold their face of my Father which is in heaven. The word there certainly implies that these angels have a special personal role to play in relation to Jesus' disciples. But the plural angels may simply imply that all believers have numerous angels assigned to serve them and not just one. And again, I wouldn't argue the point with you, okay? But John Calvin puts it this way. The words of Christ do not mean, I'm quoting, the words of Christ do not mean that a single angel is continually occupied with this or the other person. And such an idea is an inconsistent with the whole doctrine of Scripture, which declares that the angels encamp around, he uses the reference Psalm 34, 7, the godly, and that not one angel only, but many have been commissioned to guard every one of the faithful. His view was that the care of the whole church is committed to angels in general to assist each other and each member of the body of Christ as needed. Now, this is not a new idea. Angels are active throughout the Old and New Testament for the sake of God's people. Uh, For an example, at, at the death of Lazarus, the angels, plural, accompanied him to Abraham's bosom. And in the story of Jacob, the Bible says in Genesis 28, 12, and Jacob, it refers to Jacob, and he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. We read in Psalm 34, 7, about the angel of the Lord, and campeth around about them that fear him, and delivereth them. Psalm 91, 11, which the devil misquoted the Christ uh, at the, during the moment of testing. He said, for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Again, that's Psalm 91, 11. So perhaps, and I'm just asking you to entertain the thought, That is not one angel per believer, perhaps it's all angels for all Christians all the time as needed by that individual Christian at that individual moment. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer is acknowledging that the Son of God is greater than angels. He informs us that angels are simply God's servants to, to do His bidding for the sake of those who are on their way to glory. Hebrews 1.14, the Bible says, Are they not all ministering spirits? sent forth the minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. To me, the promise here is better. I'm I'm just telling you, to me, it's better than the tradition that says that every saint has one personal guardian angel there to help them. What Hebrews 1.4 says is that all the angels, all of them, are specifically sent to minister to, not necessarily to them, but for them that believe, for their sake, for their benefit, for their good, for their protection, for their counsel, for their guidance. This means that everything angels do everywhere in the world at all times is for the glory of God, which by default means it must be for the good of all Christians. 
An angel who does something by God's assignment anywhere in the world today is fulfilling the promise that God will work all things for good to all believers everywhere. This is an awesome promise. Maybe all angels serve for the good of all Christians all the time. Maybe they are the main active force that God has placed behind that wonderful promise of Romans 8, 28, that all things ultimately work together for good for God's people. Maybe it's the angels that God has enforced under that to ensure that that indeed comes to pass. But as amazing as that is, that is not the point of Matthew eighteen ten. You say, my goodness, all this was introduction. Well, yes, in a way, I guess it was. Here, it is not the wonder. In Matthew 18, it's not the wonder that angels serve believers, but the wonder that angels serve other believers, the least of the believers, the most unappreciated and most unimpressive of the believers. Remember, the context is about how we treat other believers. He says, despise not one of these little ones in Matthew 18, verse number 10. That's the context. The argument Jesus gives for why we should not treat other believers in belittling ways is because, and he answers that because, quoting, their angels do always behold the face of my Father. The point is that these angels have the immeasurable rank and privilege to be in the immediate presence of God. These are powerful creatures by their own right, by their own creation, by God, of course. But certainly they're powerful in office, in rank, in stature, because of their presence before the very face of God. So how is this fact going to motivate us? To honor the lowest Christian. When I look at the lowest Christian today, the guy who is is serving Christ the most least effective, if you will, how in the world can I look at him and how can this verse of Scripture motivate me to look at him in a, well, shall we say a better light? Consider this for a moment. Ponder the fact that every Christian has the creator of the universe as their father. Consider that every Christian has the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of this universe, as their elder brother. He calls him his brethren. Consider this. Every Christian is indwelt with the very power of God through the Holy Spirit. Now, you cannot have a safer, more exalted position as a human being than that. There's no way to be lifted higher than that. However, we might ask this. Why do I need all these angels looking after me in the first place? God is all-powerful. He could do it alone. Yes, He could. Uh, The Lord Jesus said on the cross, I could call legions of angels. I could call legions of angels. My Father would send all these angels to, to help me, to take me down off this cross if I wanted to. And actually, you and I both know he didn't need the angels. He could have came down himself anytime he wanted to. God is all-powerful. He could look after you alone. He doesn't need angels to do that. God is all-powerful. He can meet your need. He could have closed the mouths of the lions in and, and, and the uh, lion's den with uh, Daniel without sending an angel. He could have delivered Lot uh, from, uh, from Sodom and Gomorrah without uh, sending the angel. Of course, God's all-powerful. Uh, secondly, though, one angel is so powerful, again, if God did send me one angel, why would I need hundreds or thousands of the highest ranking and most powerful angels serving to meet my need? You've seen in the scripture what one angel is capable of doing. My goodness, how then does it motivate me 
to treat all Christians with the deepest respect, the deepest amount of all, when I think that they are surrounded by a multitude of these powerful angelic creatures? The answer is getting back to our title of the message. The answer, I believe, is at least in part because of the unseen glory that surrounds every believer, even the least among us. Let's give you an example. May I do that? Suppose you were going to receive at your house today, at your humble dwelling today, the son of the greatest king on earth. The son of the greatest, most powerful, most exalted king on earth is coming to your house today. And sure enough, when he comes, he arrives at your home and there's two strong guards on either side of him. Oh boy, you see their swords, oh boy, they're, they're sharp. Their, their shields are glistening in the sun. These are big, powerful soldiers, men of great might, men of great stature. And, and you might look at that knowing they are there to protect him, to serve him, to meet his need. Knowing he's the king's son and seeing these powerful guards, you're probably in a state of awe. And someone will say, someone's coming up the driveway and someone may say, well, maybe it's the garbage collector. And you look out and you see this fellow coming with these two mighty, mighty soldiers. And you say, this ain't no garbage collector. This is the son of the king. He said he was coming today and that's got to be him right there. I don't have any neighbor, any friend, any brother or sister in Christ that would come up like that. That is the son of the king. But let me ask you this. What if he arrived with 500 terrifying titans of the greatest strength and beauty surrounding him on every side? I mean, they all have sharpened swords and glistening shields and they're arrayed in battle array. And they're all big and strong and powerful and surrounding this man. And you think to yourself, these soldiers can be nothing less than the elite guard and agents of the king himself. What might that tell you? You see, the point is not that this big entourage gives the king's son a greater glory. He, he's the son of the king. He already has the glory. He, he already has the prestige. He already has the power. He already has the title. He is the son of the king. It doesn't matter if he comes by himself. He's still the king's son. But rather, this great entourage of soldiers is a reminder that he is the king's son. And it reminds you of the level of safety and honor and dignity bestowed on this man by the king himself. Wow, the king must love him. The king must really honor him. The king must really respect him deeply to send this many soldiers to look after him. He obviously don't need this many for protection. But they are making a statement. They're making a statement, this is my son in him, I am well pleased. Now, I think this is what Jesus wants you and I to think. When the least impressive disciple of Jesus walks into the room, we want to think, then he wants us to think that there's a multitude of powerful angels assigned to care for this saint. And these angels stand in the very presence of God. They are the elite angels of God, and they surround this man constantly, not just to defend him, but to honor him and to show any demon in hell that may be walking, to give testimony to anyone that this 
is my child. There's no counting these angels. Since more or less every angel in the world serves for the sake of this disciple. And these angels have a rank and dignity corresponding to the fact that they have direct and continual access to God. So, so the message I'm sharing with you this morning is this. Hold every Christian in the highest esteem. Don't despise this simple, unimpressive disciple of Jesus. Let his angelic entourage remind you whose son he is. Let the angels remind you who his older brother is. Put your hand over your critical mouth and show great esteem to all the ordinary childlike disciples of our Lord. If the fact that this humble disciple is a child of God, the king doesn't change your attitude about him. Let the terrifying rank and power of their angelic guards waken you from your stupor. Or as Jesus puts it, take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For around them and overshadowing them, surrounding them, is unseen glory. The unseen glory of the angelic host who are there to minister to him, to meet his every need, and to ensure that everything will ultimately work out for good because he loves the Lord. Let me tell you something today. I realize there are those in the body of Christ that it's hard to honor. Maybe it's their lifestyle. Maybe it's the way they conduct themselves. Maybe we look at them and even question their salvation, and perhaps, perhaps rightly so, because of the life they're living, the testimony, the fruit that they're displaying in their life, we say, you know, there's no way in the world this is a child of God. And I certainly think there's a place for some of that. There's, there's time to, to judge the fruit of someone that might not be living for the Lord. And there's times to correct them and to even rebuke them. I, I understand that. But that ought to be done with a recognition that they are the children of God. By testimony, they say they are, and we may even doubt that. But if by testimony they say, I believe, I believe that I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me on the cross. He rose the third day. His shed blood's forgiven me of my sin. I've received him as my Savior. Well, that's about as far as I can go because I can't see their heart. Now, I know the Bible says by their fruits ye shall know them, but, but I can't see all the fruit. I can't see all the motives. I can't see all of that. So all I can do is just the best I can. But let's remember, to that most unattractive Christian, that around him is an angelic entourage that God has sent. And if God so honors him, so should I. If God so esteems him, so should I. Or to put it another way, or maybe I should say a better way, take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. I want to thank you for tuning in to the broadcast today. I believe I've got just enough time to remind you of Christian Bible College. If you are interested in pursuing an advanced degree in theology, or maybe it's just your associate's degree in theology or bachelor's degree in theology, maybe you already have a degree and you'd like to proceed further to your master's or doctorate level, we can help you at Christian Bible College. Can I encourage you to check us out online, christianbiblecollege.com. Org. Since 1980, since 1980, under the great leadership of Dr. Cecil Johnson, as he began the college, we have been giving young men and women the, the education they need to more effectively 
serve Christ. Check it out, if you will. Till next time, T.D. Worthington here saying, May God richly bless you as my prayer. May his richest blessings be upon you and yours. Until we meet again, God bless. <laughs>